conflict's going to happen. Conflict is going to come up when we get into relationship, when we get close to another person, because we're not exactly the same. We're different. But the reason that's a problem is in the, in the honeymoon phase, we're attracted to someone because we see similarities. We see things that we love and like, and we see how much we enjoy the same food. And we see the world the same way. And we're in this really merged kind of blissful state. And that is wonderful, but it's honeymoon phase is a phase because it ends. Welcome back to another episode of Get Psyched. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I'm sitting down with Nick Solichuk to talk all about getting the love you want. (sighs) It's possible. And after today's episode, I hope you're a little bit closer to achieving exactly what it is you would like to see in your love life. Whether you are partnered or single or anything and everything in between, there is something in this episode for you. What I love so much is that Nick and I dive into really owning your own shit and how to effectively communicate that with your partner so that they can show up better in conflict, so that they can show up better for you and have your needs met. Wow, what a crazy concept, asking for our needs to be met. And yes, that is easier said than done. A lot of us have a really hard time identifying our needs because we've been told that they're invalid or that we're dramatic or anything on the spectrum of why our needs should or should not get met. And that makes it especially hard and vulnerable to show up and ask for those things in relationship. So today, Nick and I dive all into that. We talk about finding individuality and partnership and how to get your partner to also do the work. If you're on this journey, I know it can feel really isolating and lonely, and those are the last things you want to feel when you're in relationship. So if you feel like you have been slingshotted into the personal development world and your partner's not following, we talk about that too. If you haven't already, please, please, please leave the show a five-star rating and review. I know I say it, week to week, but it really does improve the show. It allows me to continue to get awesome guests. It warms my heart to read your kind words. And I'm doing a little giveaway for those that are submitting five-star ratings and reviews. So once you submit your five-star rating and review, take a screenshot because it does take Apple a few days to upload it and send me a DM of your five-star rating and review. I'll add you into the giveaway and send a little something your way. Finally, if show notes are a thing that you tend to overlook, I highly suggest you pause and look at today's show notes. Nick's course is launching and registration closes in just a few weeks. So be sure if everything you hear on today's show is something you're interested in hearing more about and learning more about and the work you want to step into, hit that link and register for Nick's upcoming course. Until next week, enjoy the show. All right, my friends, welcome back to another episode of Get Psyched. I'm extremely excited for today's episode because by far and large, the most questions I get are romantic questions, relationship questions. How can I show up as a better partner? How can I mitigate this problem that's happening in my current relationship? And through a deep dive, and um, I will say being totally creepy on the internet, found Nick's page and is so excited to pick his brain about all of the questions you sent to me and also selfishly what I have about my own relationship. So Nick, thank you so much and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I certainly would never have thought of you as creepy. You've been very kind and respectful and I appreciate your generosity inviting me onto the show. So thanks for having me here. Well, thank you so much. I guess where I want to start, because it was a term I had never heard of before finding you and your work, is Imago and this paradigm through which you you coach and kind of see the world. And I'd love to introduce listeners to the concept of that as well. Absolutely. So maybe I'll set the stage a little bit here and give uh, the listeners a sense of what Imago is and whether there's a, a community around that or a school of thought around that, because this is not my original idea. This is pioneered by Harville Hendricks and Helen Hunt, the co-authors of Getting the Love You Want. 
And they have gone on to write a number of profound books in the field of relationships, some focused on um, helping singles, some focused on helping couples. And Harville is one of these people that's been featured on Oprah like a record number of times. I think it's 18 times he's been on the show. And if you ever take a workshop with him, he will mention it. And uh, he is just a very wise, uh, curious, open-minded, and, and beautiful soul. And uh, I have had the privilege of taking his therapy training. They've developed a school, Imago Relationships International or Imago Relationships North America. Um, and they teach clinicians the insights of the Imago theory. Um, there's levels to that and supervision and, and a whole set of tools that come with, with this training. And uh, it's had a profound in impact on me such that I've dedicated myself full-time to working with singles and couples on the quality of their lives and their relationships. So the question is, you know, what is imago? Um, that is a Latin term for image. And in the context of relationships, it means this composite image of your primary caretakers, the two people who raised you, programmed you, so to speak, um, developed you and had this formative impact on your life. And many people have great relationships with their parents, but many people also have wounding from their parents, from less than ideal parenting styles that go on. So part of this imago image that we, we hold in our mind is about this experience that we had with people who were maybe supposed to love us the most, um, but, but couldn't in certain ways or didn't, and thereby created wounding for us. And our unconscious mind has not forgotten about that. So in our efforts to find the one, to find true love, we end up being attracted to people that we consciously recognize as kind or um, generous, humorous, confident, good-looking, creative, and all the, all the kind of positive traits that someone might look for in a partner. But we're also drawn to this other part of our imago, which is the negative traits of our primary caretakers. So this imago image is a composite of both positive and negative traits. And this um, really messes people up because they can notice patterns as they go from relationship to relationship throughout their life, where they can end up with someone who is just like their previous partner. And what they're missing is, is and this is the imago theory, what they're missing is that there are key growth opportunities associated with this that are all about healing. And it's often... Um, not often, it's almost always, you know, an opportunity for both people in the relationship. It's not just about, you know, one person who might identify as not enough or broken. Um, in my work, I really see that everyone has a not good enough story, can just have like a different flavor, different perspective, different context to it. And so in this way, uh, relationships can really be this allyship for healing and growth. And the Imago paradigm really, really emphasizes that, that the struggles and challenges we come up against in our relationship are, are actually growth opportunities and they're about healing and development. Something that I think most people can relate to is that story, right? Like I always date the same guy. And for me, that was very, very true. And after about my third failed relationship of seemingly dating the same person, I got very, very curious and now wish that I had more Imago tools at that time in my life. But kind of the honest audit I took of myself is, Lindsay, you are the common denominator in all of these different situations. What about you is calling in that energy? And something that really struck me was kind of talking about this more, maybe an unconscious um, attraction to the more shadowy side of the caretaker that you find in that partner. Can you dive into that a little bit more? Because that was really interesting. So in particular, why would a person be attracted unconsciously to negative traits? Yeah. Yeah. So what that's really all about is that we tend to have, most people tend to have unresolved stuff from their past, from their childhood that they haven't faced or haven't dealt with in some way. And that just has a tendency to resurface in our relationships. And I believe it's Terry Real that phrases it this way, that you know, intimacy is a trauma trigger. So we get close to others. We, we want to bond. We've got this honeymoon, blissful vision for the relationship. And we, we want to be in love, 
But what we don't realize is when we step into that arena, there are all kinds of other things that are part of that experience. Grief, sadness, unresolved issues, disappointment, disillusionment. These are things that couples face and they come up against. And until they learn how to work on that and learn new empowering paradigms to work on that, the same issues typically come up again and again. So this this this, this draw towards um, the shadowy parts or these negative traits is really actually all about one's own mind, body, mind, you know, one's own system, trying to actually resolve and make sense of what went on in the past and to try and make sense of those fears that they've got now and learn how to actually get their needs met as an adult, because we're, we're, we're not seven years old anymore. We're not 15. We're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, however old you are, you're here now in the present moment. So with that information, owning that I'm no longer a child, how can I be and how can I get my needs met? And that is, that's an easy thing to say. It's an easy thing for me to simplify, but wow, is this challenging because we constantly fall asleep over and over again and lose consciousness in our daily life. And we're not aware of and present to some of the patterns and some of the ways of being we've got that create some of these situations that we're in as well. So it's partly that we're attracted to people that show up in a certain way, but we can also behave and speak and, and listen. And uh, there's different ways of being that essentially also co-create and contribute to situations where we can evoke the negative behavior as well. So there's a, there's a number of ways we can unconsciously co-create the negative scenes of our childhood. And people tend to have a proclivity to do that. Right. And you kind of highlighted that as almost even if it's unconscious, identifying that wound as a hope to figuring out how to integrate it or how to cope or how to find an answer for it. I heard you say um, recently that, uh, what exactly what was the term? Conflict is an invitation for growth or something in that vein. And I'm yeah. curious if this is tied into that. Well, I might've said it in a more crude way, which is <laughs> uh, AFCO. And AFCO is an acronym. That's a kind of a little inside joke that I use with um, my couples and a, a joke that, you know, some Imago therapists use with each other, which is another fucking growth opportunity. Here we go <laughs> again, you know? Okay. All right. Because conflict's going to happen. Conflict is going to come up when we get into relationship, when we get close to another person, because we're not exactly the same. We're different. But the reason that's a problem is in the, in the honeymoon phase, we're attracted to someone because we see similarities. We see things that we love and like, and we see how much we enjoy the same food and we see the world the same way. And we're in this really merged kind of blissful state. And that is wonderful, but it's honeymoon phase is a phase because it ends and that bubble bursts and we enter a power struggle, which can happen on any number of issues could be about how fast someone goes in the freeway. It could be about how much time they spend uh, talking to ex-partners. It could be uh, something around how much junk food they eat at night, whatever it is, or something you notice is a difference about you and your partner. And it's, there's something disturbing. There's something hurtful sometimes. And there's definitely a fear that you've got about the difference. And our brain codes that difference as danger. So we can start to feel like our, our partner maybe is a threat to our life force or our experience in some way. And this, this matters greatly and it's significant because we all go through it. It's a normal experience. It's necessary actually for growth, which is a key thing to get. And it can be temporary. These kind of challenges and struggles can be temporary. So we don't have to endure this stuff forever. The, the uncomfortable experience, the rawness, the nightmare sometimes that we experience in our relationship and I'm exaggerating the point, uh, this is really happening as a growth opportunity. Now, when I say that, people often come to me and say, well, Nick, you know, what about abuse? What about these really extreme toxic situations? In general, I'm not giving advice. And I, I, I would just caution people that anything you're hearing from me or others, you know, in the public space is generally, unless they say so, not, they're not speaking to the extremes. Um, but I would also argue in those situations, there are growth opportunities as a result, because some people are coping with their hurt and their pain through abusive or toxic behaviors. 
And, and, and there's certainly growth for both people in that situation. And the growth might be to get out. The growth might be to get support and safely exit that situation. So that's a, a kind of a long answer here to original question. Um, does that does that make sense, Lindsay? Do you feel like kind of? Yeah. If if there was a couple that was experiencing this, and they can kind of laugh to themselves and say, "Wow, this is another fucking growth opportunity," right? How do you start to gain the insight into that instead of living in the trigger, right? Instead of living in the conflict, living in the fight, instead of getting stuck in that dialogue of who is more right and who is more wrong, or let me prove to you why this hurt me so much. How do they start to gain that awareness of stepping away from the trigger and into the opportunity? We can get really fixated on who's right and who's wrong in, in relationship. And as soon as we take up a position that we are correct and we are right, we start to contribute to a sense of inequality in relationship. And the last thing that anybody wants is a feeling of being unequal, a feeling of being less than, a feeling of not being important or not mattering. And what we tend to do when we take positions of right we end up making someone else wrong and we can arouse anxiety for them, which is never the kind of arousal that couples want. And then we can complain about it and be frustrated, you know, that uh, things aren't working. So one of the key things that happens in the power struggle is that we feel like our perspective is correct. We can feel like we know how to do the dishes. We know how the house should be cleaned. We know how much money to spend on groceries or supplements. We know how we should be dressed when we go out in public. And our partner needs to see it the way that we see it. You know, they need to get that uh, they're wrong. And, you know, and what people do is they say, I'm going to cause you pain until you see the world the way that I see it. Right. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to withhold from you. I'm going to avoid you or I'm going to control you and dominate you and smother you until you get what I want you to get. And this is not a great uh, way to be in relationship. It's uh, hurtful, harmful. It, it degrades the sense of safety and connection and equality. But we tend to do it. And we learn these patterns in our family system because negativity is the adult form of the infant's cry. So we use criticism, blame, shame, finger pointing in order to get what we want. The power struggle, it doesn't just happen once. This is like an ongoing thing because as you grow through opportunities, it's going to come back around again. It's going to, it's going to rear its head in some way. And that's why AFCO, right? Here we go. Okay. Conflict is, is, uh, is coming up. And what's the growth opportunity in here? One of the most important points to, to, to answer your question is really that couples need to understand is they're never really fighting about what they think that they're fighting about. You know, it's not about the garbage disposal. It's not about the landscape the or the, the, the lid. The, yeah, the lid off the toothpaste, the toilet seat up, you know, the, these kinds of things that people get in arguments about. If you have repetitive conflicts in your relationship and please, you know, um, and know that the foremost experts in relationship in the world all are saying the same thing, that if you're fighting about the same thing two, three times, you're having repetitive conflicts in your relationship, this is 100% about childhood for both of you. There's something here from your past that's driving the reactivity now. Hysteria is historical. So if it's coming up, it's a lot of energy now in the moment. As I like to say, the volume is turned up way too high for the genre of the song. You know, something doesn't match here. You need to get really curious. And this is one of the breakthroughs. And one of the ways that couples can create insights is to start getting curious about, you know, what does this remind me of from childhood? What hurts me about this? What am I actually afraid of? And what does this dynamic remind me of? Mm. And start to connect the dots in that way. How does something like this, this paradigm land for somebody that might have had an abusive or really absent parent, right? I can start to hear the narrative of, well, shoot, if all of this is attached to that, am I doomed? Can I change the trajectory of how I show up in relationship? Absolutely. 
So some people do have experiences that are terrible that we would never wish upon anyone. And, and I'm sorry that if anyone listening has gone through that kind of experience, no one deserves to have that. And we've all got wounding to different degrees and we're wounded in relationship, but we can also heal in relationship. And I would argue that actually a lot of our healing um, cannot take place outside of relationship. You know, it's very easy to be a Zen monk and to be cool as a cucumber when you're not in a primary attachment. Now, this is not the only way to gain wisdom. It's not the only way to work on yourself. Classically, there's a couple different paths. Some people like to phrase that as the, you know, the way of the garden or the way of the desert. So you either go solo on your own journey as the monk, or you go the way of the garden and you partner up and uh, meet a lover. I'm not attached to whatever path people take. I just happen to focus, you know, primarily on, on this garden experience that we have. And that's tough too, because it needs to be tended and nurtured. And there's all kinds of things. Negativity is a classic example, which is kind of the weed that can grow or the bug that can infest the space and eat away at some of the pillars and, and foundational things that couples need to thrive. Yeah. Something you said recently that really struck my attention on social media was tying infidelity or cheating back to these early family systems as well, right? That that is that reaction, um, if we want to name it, that is almost always based in someone's inability or yeah, someone's inability to show up or us seeking something outside of the relationship. Can you touch on a little bit more of that? Because I feel like that is very uh, synonymous with this charged, am I broken? Am I ever going to find my way out of conflict? Perhaps infidelity is is the easy way out or not the garden if I'm not willing to step up to this conflict. So can you explain a little bit more about that? Well, uh, in, the, in, the, in the sense of cheating, affairs, this, this betrayal, really this is connected to something that um, people do on different scales, which in Imago, the Imago world, we really call exits, energetic leaks. Now, just to dial this back a little bit, if I'm feeling uncomfortable in my relationship and I don't like something that's going on, I might choose to focus more on work. And it's kind of a functional kind of exit because, hey, well, I got to work. I got to pay the bills. You know, I got to provide for the family. But underneath that is actually um, a motivation to protect oneself from pain or hurt or discomfort that's going on in the connection. So this, I just want to describe this as a kind of functional exit and there's all kinds of different ones. I could sit at the breakfast table with my family and I could hold the newspaper up over my face and just, oh, I'm busy reading the newspaper. And it's a way to avoid connection, a way to avoid other things that are going on or things that I might feel uncomfortable with. So if you ramp this up, there's a more uh, dangerous kind of exit that people take, which is cheating or affairs. And again, there's something happening in the relationship that they're they're a, they're projecting that their partner is a source of their pain, their partner is no longer the source of their pleasure in some way. They feel like they they don't know how or can't get their need met, so they go outside of the relationship to get that in order to avoid the the pain that they're experiencing. And this choice to exit is often connected to key developmental stages that we went through as a child, and. One of those key stages that most people know about and have heard about is attachment. And there's really two key wounds there that can happen for an individual, which is one, they feel abandoned. So a lot of people have heard of the abandonment wound. The flip side to that is that they felt unwanted. And there are a number of stages and there's a number of wounds. And oftentimes a person's choice to exit is connected to part of the story. It's connected part of their hurt from the past. And the thing that they had to do as a child to survive the family system, the thing that they had to do to protect themselves, to um, protect their identity, to preserve their ability and their autonomy to explore, or to defend their uh, right to be sexual. And th there's so many ways that this can happen. Um, 
But it is it is a key part and a, cr- a critical part for couples that are in situations where there has been affairs or cheating or that's going on right now and you're working through it as a couple. It's really, really important to understand what some of those motivations are, where do those some of this, those things come from, what's the original wound. And it's important because the, the uh, partner who gets cheated on needs to have some empathy for where that comes from in their partner. And the person who chose to have the affair needs to take ownership for that. And the couple can then become allies in a way to work on that challenge uh, Mm -hmm. so they can turn towards the issue together. So when we're talking about these key kind of development phases and what pops up to, to me, especially in, you know, adolescence, teenagehood is this, the individuation process, right? This inherent, I am going to pull away. I am going to, a lot of times there's, you know, some defiance for the quote unquote rebellious teenage years, because I mean, when I was 13, I didn't know who I was, but I did know I wanted to push against my parents or whoever it was that was trying to tell me who I was or who had modeled what had created me. Right. And so I'm curious how that might play into this dynamic too, if that is such an important process, how might that tie into then romantic relationships and how do we find individuality when we're in coupleship? Mm. Well, there's so many different ways to think about this. I mean, even as a two-year-old, you're in this key developmental stage of, of no, you know, using the word no. And if we don't develop the ability to say no, the sense that it's okay to say no, I mean, kids will say no to their favorite TV show. They'll say no to their favorite snack. They're just trying it on. And then in 20 minutes, they'll change their mind. They'll, they'll, they'll say yes. So, uh, so, so many ways that, that plays out for individuals, they feel like they can't say no as an adult because they have this projection that their partner maybe won't accept that or doesn't accept them or rejects them in some way or wants to control them in some way. And there's different ways that this kind of people pleasing or withholding or manipulation might form. But in terms of individuation, one of the key things there is really around identity. So the developmental stage of identity is really connected to the sense that it's okay to be me. And we can go a couple different ways with that because if we're told, if we're told that we're not, it's not okay to be me, we might become rigid. We might become stubborn in order to protect and preserve the sense that it's okay to be me, or we might become kind of vague about who we are, almost diffuse and um, start to feel like we don't know who we are. We just wait for someone to tell us who to be. Uh, This creates a couple different communication styles and relationship, which in Imago we call maximizing and minimizing. One person tends to take offensive strategies to resolve issues. One person tends to expand or exaggerate um, topics or subjects or emotions. Uh, one person feels like they need to take responsibility for fixing the problems in the relationship. They can be more of the storm cloud, a lot of energy, maybe throwing some lightning bolts. And that person is generally attracted to the minimizer, who is Mm. the person who takes more defensive strategies, tends to withhold their thoughts and feelings and behaviors. And they're kind of like the turtle in the shell more so. And that's that's a really, really powerful Imago concept, maximizing and minimizing. I've gotten a ways off here of like individuation as a child. So I just want to come back to you, Lindsay, to make sure that I'm speaking to the point because I have a tendency to be long-winded. That's okay. That's totally fine. You know, one thing that was interesting about the maximizer and the minimizer is that their goal sounds the exact same, but the way of getting there is completely different, right? Absolutely. The goal I'm hearing is um, the sense of worth and either I'm going to be loud and prove it to you, or I might retreat and, and, you know, really kind of hold my worth private to myself um, without a fear of sharing it with you, maybe that it won't be met in that place or that I will be, you know, my needs won't be met. Yeah. There's there's kind of, um, everyone's got a desire to be safe, that to, to just have it be okay to be them. And we don't want our life force threatened. 
So they just manifest differently for two people. So, you know, I heard Esther Perel say it this way once that there's two people that come out of childhood. One desires more freedom, more choice, and the other desires more stability and more commitment. Mm. Yeah, so that person that wants more freedom and more choice, they're the one typically with the wounds of being unwanted, controlled, smothered, dominated. And the person who wants more stability and commitment, they're the one that feel like, oh, I feel like I've got an abandonment wound. I feel like I was neglected or I felt invisible as a child. My, my you know, achievements were ignored. Uh, so each people have wounds that are part of this less than ideal parenting experience. They have subsequent fears that develop. And then they have strategies they develop as a child to make sure those fears don't come true. And that is what maximizing mm -hmm. and minimizing is all about. So it's about protecting oneself protecting life force, minimizing consequences, and really just trying to survive the dynamic. And we talk about survival, we use that word, it can sound kind of extreme, like I'm, I'm surviving in the wild. But when I say survive in the sense, I mean that my identity can survive, that my sexuality can survive, that my ability to explore the world, try new things can survive. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've always, because it sounds very similar and I'd love to hear what the differences are, but it sounds very similar to the attachment styles, right? And I always kind of talk about it as the dark side of the moon of attachment, right? We all have that basic human desire to attach. And then there's the fear and anxiety that comes with it. The fear of losing the relationship. What will I happen if this love goes away? And right for perhaps the more avoidant one, maybe their answer is, okay, well, I'll leave before I can get left or I'll put up these walls and never fully connect and always keep you at arm's distance. And perhaps someone who's more insecure, anxious might, you know, dig in a little bit deeper or become, you know, quote unquote needy. And that so often we view conflict or the world through this paradigm, right? Through this lens of, how am I going to soothe that fear and anxiety if the love were to leave? Would you say that's very similar to maximizing, minimizing? I think that within there, there's something similar going on, but I would actually venture to say that, you know, with maximizers and minimizers, typically one person, um, the fears are different. One person has a fear of the relationship ending one person has a fear of being abandoned and neglected, but the other person actually has a fear of being controlled and smothered and dominated. So it's actually kind of safer to be at a distance, safer even to be out of relationship mm. to, you know, to a degree. Um, and these are also the things that draw them together. These are the things that attract these two people because they have different pulsing, vibrating energies within them. One minimizes, one maximizes, one could be avoidant, one could be anxious, and they're drawn together. It's, it's you know, more complicated than that because we've got these core aspects to ourself. We've got these parts of ourselves that are online when we're born, and they become compromised over time as we experience less than ideal stuff in the world and our families. We can have parts that are repressed, underdeveloped, undernurtured. So for example, if I don't have a great sense of humor, I'm a math whiz and I love accounting and, you know, I love my, my Excel spreadsheets. I might be attracted to a partner who is maybe a little wilder than me. They maybe like to ride a motorcycle or they've got a great sense of humor um, or they're a stand-up comedian. Um, I'm just making up examples to just talk about these, this kind of opposites attract thing that goes on. And I find this with me and my partner. I find this with couples that I work with that uh, it's true that this, this, this opposites attract thing. And that difference, again, coming back to that point, that difference can also, in the power struggle, be coded as danger by our brain. We can feel threatened, feel like, oh, maybe I got to get out of here, or maybe I need to cling and hold on to my partner really tight. And th this kind of pulsing, vibrating energy is the minimizing, maximizing the couples have trouble with and, and struggle with. So that's one of the first things I work with couples on is, is getting them to understand and become more aware of when, when they are minimizing or maximizing, mm -hmm. because we, we can be both and we can we're not fixed pieces of furniture. So I might maximize, for example, something like, oh, we got to wash our hands. You know, that's really important. But I might minimize, oh, it's not important to go the speed limit, you know, drive as fast as I want. And uh, 
the point the point is is normally when one person's a maximizer or a minimizer their partner has the opposite thing going on and those are the things that can cause issues because of the the pulsing vibrating the just our psyche is disturbed how could our partner possibly see the world this way you know and we got to talk about it make sure that they see it the way i see it and that i'm safe and my life force isn't threatened by this idea that you've got Hmm. yeah i um heard esther perel kind of talk about this in the paradox of of couples right those things that are so alluring and kind of adventurous in the beginning like oh they like that's so fun that he or she sees the world that way that those same things that kind of added a little bit of glimmer or twinkle in the in the honeymoon phase also tend to be the things that become our biggest triggers later yes that are like oh my god I can't believe he drives that fast or whatever it might be right from for my partnership is I can't believe he still takes this long to order off the menu it was very (laughs) cute in the beginning and now I just order an appetizer to make sure I'm not hangry and get mad right we found we found what works for us but this this paradox right and how it seems to flip right and we find ourselves in this maximizer minimizer kind of space and conflict if this is ringing true to people if they are like wow this totally sounds like how my fights escalate with my partner and i would love to see this as an opportunity for growth what is the first step right i know you said identify when that's happening right when i'm starting to maximize or i'm starting to minimize is that something that we might feel somatically? Is that something that might feel just like, oh my gosh, we're in the same pattern and I'm bringing awareness to that? How would someone start to identify that they're even in that dynamic? The way that I might phrase this is that you might be feeling like your relationship is not going well in that moment. Your relationship might feel badly in that moment or on that day. And the reason that I say it, the reason I say it that way is a lot of people actually don't have somatic awareness about what's going on and what it feels like. So noticing if things are feeling bad or not good is kind of just the first point. And okay, let's get curious from there about why and how am I being about that feeling? How am I responding or reacting to that? Am I brushing it off? Am I dismissing my partner? Am I being defensive? Am I getting quiet and, you know, retreating, going for a long drive in the truck? Or am I getting really anxious and picking fights and um, screaming about it? Or, uh, you know, like I'm a rabbit dog on a bone. I just won't let it go. And just to start to notice, you know, because these are both, these are both the extremes and, the way that I'm describing them, you can hear in there, there isn't really an embodiment of security, right? Mm -hmm. It's totally okay to say, hey, honey, I really want to talk about this. This is important to me. And it's perfectly okay to say, hey, you know, it's really important. I need to clear my head and go for a walk. These things are okay, but it's often the way that we communicate and the way that we respond, that the, the context of the message that embodies the, you know, security. So, in terms of becoming aware of this, just notice, first of all, things don't feel good. Okay. And then how are you responding to that? Not How are you responding to that not feeling good? How is that manifesting? And just start to notice. And the next step here for people that are going to practice this is to take on a couple key opportunities. So if you tend to be the person that withholds, keeps things to yourself, maybe you get defensive, you work things out on your own, in your own mind. Your opportunity is to open up a little bit more, actually, to take ownership for how you're feeling and to share that with your partner in a respectful way and to actually lean in a little bit and just get a little bit closer to to your partner. For the person that tends to maybe start going to panic, they start to exaggerate their emotions, they feel like they're always taking responsibility for the issues in the relationship. Maybe they they resonate with really just being super, super anxious, or maybe they resonate with disorganized attachment. Their opportunities are really around self-soothing, regulating their nervous system, sometimes backing off a little bit, Mm. giving their partner some space. And these are really hard things to do if we're not aware of the fact that we are 
maximizing or minimizing. We don't see it. So it's very difficult. One of the other ways I would phrase this, Lindsay, just to drive the point home is the thing that your partner needs from you is often the hardest thing for you to give them. Mm -hmm. So for example, if uh, my partner is really upset about something and worked up, my tendency, if I'm a minimizer, might be to back away and, and withdraw, withhold, shut down, go be by myself, instead of coming over to give her a hug and reassure her and let her know everything's okay. And this is, again, one of the many, many paradoxes that exists in relationship is that the thing that my partner needs the most is the hardest thing for me to give them. So I have to stretch and grow a little bit to show up in that way for them, to be an ally in their healing. And in, in no way do I mean that you should self-abandon or self-neglect to give your partner the thing that they want. I'm talking here about stretching. Okay, not giving up on yourself or abandoning yourself, but just stretching a little bit in that moment to back off from your partner, give them space, or actually just lean a little bit towards them to show some curiosity, to ask them how they're doing, or to offer you know a statement of reassurance. Mm. I can imagine how hard that would be, right? Because when we're talking about the early recognition of, oh, I'm maximizing or minimizing is that sense that safety is gone in the relationship or the instability, how much harder than that next step would be if all you're looking to do is soothe, right? Self-soothe in that moment to actually extend and reach towards your partner or retract from them if that's what they need in that moment, even causing a little bit more of a sense of instability in your system. Yeah. Is it the coming back together? Is it the like proof is in the pudding? Do I have to try it a few times and see how there's all of a sudden, you know, to do something, to get something different, you've got to do something you've never done before, right? Is that kind of the new pattern and what helps this become sustainable in relationship? Yes. And there are some really, really important things that couples need to discover. For example, once a person knows what they needed and wanted the most as a child and didn't get. Once they can identify that, that exact thing is what their partner needs to remember inside of a conflict. So this is why healing is possible only in relationship to a degree. I don't mean all healing, but some healing is only possible in relationship because you actually need this two-person system to form an allyship, co cooperate and collaborate on these difficult matters, on these deep fears that come up. And this is one of the things that I work with couples on is to help them uncover their unconscious personal relationship story so that they can get exactly what how they need to show up for their partner, understand how their own projections get in the way and how they actually self-sabotage the thing that they say they want the most by their using and resorting to their unconscious strategies, which are their childhood strategies, which are the things that they learned to do and had to do to, to get around difficult stuff that they dealt with. Yeah, those really young parts. I always try to try to find the compassion, right? Because I've seen clients come in that are just beating themselves up for the way that they reacted in something. And when we can turn that towards self-compassion, like, hey, if you saw a six-year-old react in this way, how might you feel towards them? And it's yeah. always, right? I want to help them. I want to soothe them. I want to hold them. I want to hug them, whatever it is. And being able to find that same compassion within yourself and nurture that those same young parts that have those very early, early coping mechanisms is so important. Yeah. I know that you have in the spring launching a program for couples. So if what we talked about today is perking up the ears of listeners, what is the program? How do they get involved with it? Well, the uh, program is going to be live mid-March, and you can go to my website, nicksolacek.com, go to my Instagram. Lindsay will have all that linked in the show notes, and the program will, will be readily available, promoted. This is going to be a six-week program for couples, and it's going to take them through some of the key things that we're talking about here in terms of the insights of Mago, what are maximizers and minimizers? How can they understand their unconscious relationship story? And how can they get really clear about the things that happened to them when, when they were a kid that are driving some of the reactivity today, that are contributing to some of their 
fears and some of the ways that they're showing up. Uh, and as well, I want couples to take away from this program uh, sort of a, a toolkit, things they can use in their life practically, not just ideas, but actual practical worksheets that they can use as reference. They can have like a little emergency booklet or a binder or a couple's practice binder they can put together. Uh, and to use these things to really make a, a difference in their relationship and change trajectory and, and create positive change. So I'm really excited to be putting that out. I've been talking about it for well over a year, and this is the, the time to do it. So if you're interested in that, you can reach out to me directly, visit my website, and it'll be there mid, mid-March mid 2023. Yay! That's so exciting. What is the program called? It's called Ready for Love. Ready for Love. So yeah. is it for couples that have been in long-term partnership, just starting out, anywhere and everywhere in between? Good question. The program is for couples who are new. They're in a new relationship. Maybe they want to get ahead of the ball. They want to start working on things together. They're, they're walking that path of conscious relationship. The course is for couples that are doubting the relationship. They're feeling uncertain. They don't know if the relationship is going to last. Couples who have been married for decades and are struggling with some longstanding patterns and they, they want to break through. Couples who are struggling with communication issues, they're fighting about the same things. But the course also can be used by singles as well to enhance their dating life, get clear on their relationship vision, get clear on their own personal story, and use the content to examine some of their previous relationships and positively influence the choices that they make and the partner selection choices they make moving forward. Mm, I love that. I like that it goes not only towards the couple, but also the individual and doing kind of the prehab work, right? So we don't have to rehab it later. What are the things that I can get very, very clear on and be intentional going into my next relationship? That sounds really, really special. Yeah. Most couples, most people just don't have education about relationships. We're under resource. We don't have the tools. So I, I know many people that are going to take this course, they're in a relationship and they're going to take this program privately. If they're going to go through it on their own, they're going to see what's there for them. And that's okay too. Um, as long as people are seeking support and they're getting something effective and useful that can make a difference. Uh, there's a lot of resistance sometimes that partners can have to therapy, coaching, counseling, letting a stranger basically into your relationship. And a course can be a, a little bit of a safer way to explore that privately on their own. Mm. What I will say, and what I like to say every time I'm talking publicly or on a podcast like this, is that if you're looking for support, I just encourage you to seek it and I encourage you to, to get it from somebody that makes you feel safe. And you've got that container is that's really the most important thing. And seeking a great coach, counselor, therapist can be a little bit like, it's nothing like, and it's a little bit like dating. It's a little bit, okay, let's just kind of get a feel for this person. Let me go for a session, see if this is what I want moving forward, if this is the right person to support me. And uh, I might be that person. The course could be great. Yeah, there's lots of resources out there and, and wonderful people that uh, are in your community, Lindsay. So yeah. Thanks for, thanks for mentioning the course. Absolutely. The last little bit that I would love to talk about, especially because it's been top of mind and top of content lately is, you know, you mentioned you might want to do it, but your partner might not, or you might want to go to counseling, but your partner might not. Is there ever a power discrepancy when one person is, you know, I saw someone ask you, how do I get my partner to do the work? I'm doing it, but they're not. How do we start to have conversation around that? How do we make it an inviting place? How do we find a practitioner that does have my partner and I feel safe together? What might that, what might that look like? Yeah. Well, one of the starting points would be to get curious. So if you're the partner that's doing the work, you're the partner who is really into personal growth and personal development. It makes sense that you want a partner to grow with you. You want your partner to grow with you. So if your partner is resistant to coaching, therapy, counseling, uh, resistant to doing the work, I would encourage you to get really curious about their resistance and to ask questions about that and to understand where they're coming from, not battling it, not, not getting offensive or defensive, just getting curious and, and saying, hey, it's really important that I understand you. I want to understand your perspective and where you're coming from and how you see things. 
Um, it can be very quick for a partner to dismiss something like getting support by saying, ah, you know, that's all garbage, or I don't want to do that, or therapy doesn't work, or I've tried it before, I don't like it. Or, um, you know, if we have to go to therapy, it means something's wrong with our relationship. Oh, that, okay. Those are just, you know, one or two sentences. Those are just some clear statements of a no. But without trying to combat that, just try to go a little bit deeper. Okay. Can you tell me more about that? Or what have your experiences been like in the past? Or, you know, how, uh, how can you feel that way? Or, or just something to kind of draw out more of their perspective, because so quickly we can go into hurt. We can go into feeling not important, not enough, hopelessness, despair, that our partner doesn't want to do things with us. And we can skip this important process of really being curious. Um, so instead of going into combative mode, trying to convince them uh, or manipulate them into a situation, tr try to show some curiosity first about what who they are really and how do they see the world and how do they see the situation. And that actually is a great starting point for your partner to feel understood for their resistance and for you to get that and then see maybe there's another way or there's another invitation. You know, there's a cheeky kind of thing that I sometimes will say to clients, which is like, hey, why don't you ask your partner for an early birthday gift or an early Christmas gift? And just say, hey, this is really important to me and it would mean the world if we could we could try it out, if you'd be willing to go with me. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such an important invitation, right? If, if someone has that big boundary and it's an absolute no, or you feel that resistance come up, like you named, it can feel very much like an attack on self. Like, well, what do you mean that you're not willing to do this thing with me? And the one thing I want to add is I have, I have offered and extended the same advice to clients. So get curious and why might they be in that place? And it's almost like, okay, and then I'm going to prove to them why all of that why is wrong, right? I'm going to, I'm going to combat it even more. And I guess what I would like to add is just letting it land in a place of compassion, right? Understanding exactly what you've talked about this whole podcast, like their big no to counseling or coaching or therapy is tied back to some really early stuff and it feels really unsafe to do it. And so I share all that because I'm so appreciative for the work you do. I am so excited to share this episode with, with the Get Psyched community. And I know we mentioned your website and the course um, and Instagram. Is that the best way for people to get a hold of you? Yes. Instagram is definitely the best way. My website is a newsletter they can subscribe to all the things. Wonderful. Well, like you said, I will be sure to link all of that in the show notes. And Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Lindsay. Appreciate it.